Section 5 of A Journey Round My Room by Xavier de Maestra Translated by Henry Atwell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 Joannetti I remarked that I was singularly fond of meditating when influenced by the agreeable warmth of my bed and that its agreeable colour added not a little to the pleasure I experienced. That I may be provided with this enjoyment, my servant is directed to enter my room half an hour before my time for rising. I hear him moving about my room with a light step and stealthily managing his preparations. This noise just suffices to convey to me the pleasant knowledge that I am slumbering, a delicate pleasure this unknown to most men. You are just awake enough to know you are not entirely so, and to make a dreamy calculation that the hour for business and worry is still in the sand glass of time. Gradually my man grows noisier. It is so hard for him to restrain himself, and he knows too that the fatal hour draws near. He looks at my watch, and jingles the seals as a warning, but I turn a deaf ear to him, there is no imaginable cheat I do not put upon the poor fellow to lengthen the blissful moment. I give him a hundred preliminary orders. He knows that these orders, given somewhat peevishly, are mere excuses for my staying in bed without seeming to wish to do so. But this he affects not to see through, and I am truly thankful to him. At last, when I have exhausted all my resources, he advances to the middle of the room, and with folded arms, plants himself there in a perfectly immovable position. It must be admitted that it would be impossible to show disapproval of my idleness with greater judgment and address. I never resist this tacit invitation, but, stretching out my arms to show I understand him, get up at once. If the reader will reflect upon the behaviour of my servant, he will convince himself that in certain delicate matters of this kind, simplicity and good sense are much better than the sharpest wit. I dare assert that the most studied discourse on the impropriety of sloth would not make me spring so readily from my bed as the silent reproach of Monsieur Jornetti. This Monsieur Jornetti is a thoroughly honest fellow, and at the same time just the man for a traveller as I. He is accustomed to the frequent journeys of my soul, and never laughs at the inconsistencies of the other. He even directs it occasionally when it is alone, so that one might say it is then conducted by two souls. When it is dressing, for instance, he will warn it, by a gesture, that it is on the point of putting on its stockings the wrong way, or its coat before its waistcoat. Many a time has my soul been amused at seeing poor Jeanetti running after this foolish creature under the arches of the citadel, to remind it of a forgotten hat or a handkerchief. One day, I must confess, had it not been for this faithful servant, who caught it up just at the bottom of the staircase, the silly creature would have presented itself at court without a sword, as boldly as if it had been the chief gentleman usher, bearing the august rod. Chapter 15. A Difficulty Come, Joletti, I said, hang up this picture. He had helped to clean it, 
and had no more notion than the man in the moon what had produced our chapter on the portrait. He it was who, of his own accord, held out the wet sponge, and who, through that seemingly unimportant act, caused my soul to travel a hundred millions of leagues in a moment of time. Instead of restoring it to its place, he held it to examine it in his turn. A difficulty, a problem, gave him an inquisitive air, which I did not fail to observe. Well, and what faults do you find with our portrait? said I. Oh, none at all, sir. But come now, you have some remark to make, I know. He placed it upright on one of the wings of my bureau, and then drawing back a little, I wish, sir, he said, that you would explain how it is that in whatever part of the room one may be, this portrait always watches you. In the morning, when I am making your bed, the face turns towards me, and if I move toward the window, it still looks at me, and follows me with its eyes as I go about. So that Jeanette, said I, if my room were full of people, that beautiful lady would eye every one on all sides at once. Just so, sir. She would smile on every comer and goer, just as she would on me? Jeanette gave no further answer. I stretched myself in my easy chair, and, hanging down my head, gave myself up to the most serious meditations. What a ray of light fell upon me! Alack, poor lover! While thou pinest away, far from thy mistress, at whose side another perhaps has already replaced thee, whilst thou fixest thy longing eyes on her portrait, imagining that at least in picture thou art the sole being she deigns to regard, the perfidious image, as faithless as the original, bestows its glance on all around, and smiles on every one alike. And in this behold a moral resemblance between certain portraits and their originals, which no philosopher, no painter, no observer had remarked before. I go on from discovery to discovery. Chapter 16. Solution. Jeanette remained in the attitude I have described, awaiting the explanation he had asked of me. I withdrew my head from the folds of my travelling dress, into which I had thrust it that I might meditate more at my ease, and after a moment's silence, to enable me to collect my thoughts after the recollections I had just made, I said, turning my armchair toward him, Do you not see that as a picture is a plain surface, the rays of light proceeding from each point on that surface? At that explanation, Jeanette stretched his eyes to their widest, while he kept his mouth half open. These two movements of the human face express, according to the famous Lebrun, the highest pitch of astonishment. It was, without doubt, my animal that had undertaken this dissertation, while my soul was well aware that Jonetti knew nothing whatever about plain surfaces and rays of light. The prodigious dilation of his eyelids caused me to draw back. I ensconced my head in the collar of my travelling coat, and this so effective that I well nigh succeeded in altogether hiding it. I determined to dine where I was. The morning was far advanced, and another step in my room would have delayed my dinner until nightfall. I let myself slip to the edge of my chair, and putting both feet on the mantelpiece, patiently awaited my meal. This was a most comfortable attitude. 
Indeed, it would be difficult to find another possessing so many advantages, and so well adapted to the inevitable sojourns of a long journey. At such moments, Rose, my faithful dog, never fails to come and pull at the skirts of my travelling dress that I may take her up. She finds a very convenient ready-made bed at the angle formed by the two parts of my body. The letter V admirably represents my position. Rose jumps to her post if I do not take her up quickly enough to please her, and I often find her there without knowing how she has come. My hands fall into a position which minister to her well-being, and this, either through a sympathy existing between this good-natured creature and myself, or through the merest chance. But no, I do not believe in that miserable doctrine of chance. In that unmeaning word, I would rather believe in animal magnetism. There is such reality in the relations which exist between these two animals, that when out of sheer distraction, I put my two feet on the mantelpiece and have no thought at all about a halt. Dinner time not being near, Rose, observing this movement, shows by a slight wag of her tail the pleasure she enjoys. Reserve keeps her in her place. The other perceives this and is gratified by it, though quite unable to reason upon its cause. And thus a mute dialogue is established between them, a pleasing interchange of sensations which could not be attributed to simple chance. Chapter 17 Rose Do not reproach me for the prolixity with which I narrate the details of my journey. This is want of travellers. When one sets out for the ascent of Mont Blanc, or to visit the yawning tomb of Empedocles, the minutest particulars are carefully described. The number of persons who formed the party, the number of mules, the quality of the food, the excellent appetite of the travellers, everything, to the very stumbling of the quadrupeds, is carefully noted down for the instruction of the sedentary world. Upon this principle I resolved to speak of my dog Rose, an amiable creature for whom I entertained sincere regard, and to devote a whole chapter to her. We have lived together for six years, and there has never been any coolness between us, and if ever any little disputes have arisen, the fault has been chiefly on my side, and Rose has always made the first advance towards reconciliation. In the evening, if she has been scolded, she withdraws sadly and without a murmur. The next morning at daybreak, she stands near my bed in a respectful attitude, and at her master's slightest movement, at the first sign of his being awake, she makes her presence known by rapidly tapping my little table with her tail. And why should I refuse my affection to this good-natured creature that has never ceased to love me ever since we have lived together? My memory would not enable me to enumerate all the people who have interested themselves in me, but to forget me. I have had some few friends, several lady-loves, and a host of acquaintances, and now I am to tell all these people as if I had never lived. They have forgotten my very name. And yet what protestations they made, what offers of assistance! Their purse was at my disposal, and they begged me to depend upon their eternal and entire friendship. Poor Rose, who has made me no promises, renders me the greatest service that can be bestowed upon humanity, for she has always loved her master, and loves him still. 
and this is why I do not hesitate to say that she shares with my other friends the affection I feel towards them. Chapter 18. Reserve. We left Jeanette standing motionless before me, in an attitude of astonishment, awaiting the conclusion of the sublime explanation I had begun. When he saw me bury my head in my dressing gown, and thus end my dissertation, he did not doubt for a moment that I had stopped short for lack of resources, and that he had fairly overcome me by the knotty question he had plied me with. Notwithstanding the superiority he had hereby gained over me, he felt no movement of pride, and did not seek to profit by his advantage. After a moment's silence, he took the picture, put it back in its place, and withdrew softly on tiptoe. He felt that his presence was a sort of humiliation to me, and his delicacy of feeling led him thus to retire unobserved. His behaviour on this occasion interested me greatly, and gave him a higher place than ever in my affections. And he will have too, without doubt, a place in the heart of my readers. If there be one among them who will refuse it him after reading the next chapter, such a one must surely have a heart of stone. Chapter 19. A Tear Good heavens, said I to him one day, three times have I told you to buy me a brush. What a head the fellow has! He answered not a word, nor had he the evening before made any reply to a like postulation. This is very odd, I thought to myself. He is generally so very particular. Well, Go and get a duster to wipe my shoes with, I said angrily. While he was on his way, I regretted that I had spoken so sharply, and my anger entirely subsided when I saw how carefully he tried to remove the dust from my shoes without touching my stockings. What? I said to myself. Are there then men who brush others' shoes for money? This word money came upon me like a flash of lightning, I suddenly remembered that for a long time my servant had not had any money from me. Shonetti, said I, drawing away my foot, have you any change? A smile of justification lit up his face at the question. No, sir. For the last week I have not possessed a penny. I have spent all I had for your little purchases. And the brush? I suppose that is why. He still smiled. Now, he might very well have said, No, sir, I am not the empty-headed ass you would make out your faithful servant to be. Pay me the one pound two shillings and sixpence halfpenny you owe me, and then I'll buy you your brush. But no, he bore this ill-treatment rather than cause his master to blush at his unjust anger. And may heaven bless him. Philosophers, Christians, have you read this? Come, Jeanette, said I. Buy me the brush. But, sir, will you go like that, with one shoe clean and the other dirty? Go, go, I replied. Never mind about the dust. Never mind that. He went out. I took the duster and daintily wiped my left shoe, on which a tear of repentance had fallen. End of section 5